From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, June 28, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, delegates are discussing global debt and artificial intelligence on day two of the summer Davos meetings in Tianjin. The head of the Wagner Group has arrived in Belarus, and dangerously high temperatures in Spain are blamed for at least two deaths. In business, China's industrial profits drop at a slower pace in May. In sports, one month ago for the World University Games in Chengdu, and in culture and entertainment, an Oscar-winning filmmaker from New Zealand is visiting China. Now the day's top stories. Well, discussions on day two of the summer Davos in Tianjin include ways to tackle global debt, how scientists can better embrace the AI revolution, Asia's sustainability efforts, and China's blueprint for digitalization. Participants, including Agility Group Chief Marketing Officer Miriam Alfoundry, say they welcome China's determination in achieving economic growth and opening up. It's great to be back in China again after uh, an absence because of COVID-19 and the global pandemic. And I thought the idea that global cooperation is very important and global peace is very important, very powerful concepts uh, for everyone everywhere. Switzerland-based Kubu Ventures CEO Niall Murphy says he's impressed with China's strong and consistent message about cooperation. Well, I was encouraged by the uh, tone of, um, uh, of collaboration and openness uh, towards a, an integrated world, really. Um, it's been concerning in the recent years, the uh, uh, sense of uh, fragmenting of, uh, of globalization. So it was very encouraging to hear a, a desire to, to see a global integration. Other prominent guests, including World Economic Forum President Berge Brenda and World Trade Organization Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, have expressed their confidence in China's development and its efforts in the world's recovery. 
New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is leading a trade delegation during his official visit to China. He says he wants to shore up economic relations and help form new connections. The dairy industry already provides a key link between the two countries, but as Owen Poland reports, there's still room for growth. It's some of the best grazing land in the world, and the organic milk is being exported on daily flights to China. You know, it can be in China um, in a matter of days. Green Valley Dairies is a family-owned business that farms 3,500 cows, and they're processing fresh milk for the Chinese market from their own factory. And this gives us the ability to track the raw milk directly from the cow through the factory to the end user. New Zealand's biggest dairy exporter is Fonterra, a cooperative of 9,000 farmers that generates annual revenues of more than 14 billion US dollars. And it's planning to tap into China's emerging well-being market with a new range of nutritional products. And so there's a lot of opportunity for us, especially as the Chinese consumer becomes more focused on health and wellness, um, to be able to offer these solutions um, through our customers to consumers. New Zealand has around 6 million dairy cows. That's more than one for every human. And around 40% of the milk that they produce gets exported to China in products ranging from infant formula to cheese, even whipped cream. Infant formula is one of the most lucrative categories, but there's also rising demand for adult milk powders. You've got an elderly population that needs servicing with nutritious product, and you've got a market there that uh, really enjoys buying these products from New Zealand. And small businesses like Green Valley Dairies hope that Chinese consumers buy into New Zealand's clean green image and the focus on sustainability. Yeah, I think we're going to see a stronger demand for organic and, um, and exactly knowing where your, your milk has come from, you know, grass-fed, pasture-based, this, this very thing that we're seeing here. This week's trade mission to China is also seen as a way to enhance future cooperation. We want to make sure that the trade lanes remain open, uh, that there is beneficial exchange of ideas uh, and, of course, the wonderful products that New Zealand can bring to China. And that was a report on New Zealand dairy products finding their market in China. Avocado farmers and exporters in Kenya are among those reaping benefits from China's open markets. China announced an express channel for importing agricultural products from Africa at a ministerial meeting of the China-Africa Cooperation Forum in 2021. Fresh avocados from Kenya entered China in less than a year. The African country has now become one of the world's leading avocado exporters. Daniel Aratmoy spoke with staff members at a major exporting company. Kakuzi Public Limited Company is one among the 78 licensed companies exporting avocados to China. We anticipate to have more going into China this year because of the good quality that we provide and uh, which comes along with a lot of consistencies. As Kakuzi, we want the consumer to get the same kind of quality as uh, always so that uh, they get used to that good quality coming from us. When the market was opened in August last year, Kenya's earnings from avocado export to China reached $50 million in the three months to October, exceeding the $42.92 million that the East African country earned between March and July of the same year. 
Kenya is reported to have exported 7 million kilograms of avocados to Beijing between March and May as more farms and park houses like Kakuzi tapped into the lucrative Chinese market. Producers and exporters seeking to export fresh avocados to China are expected to meet all the set regulations. All the fresh avocado fruits meant for export must also comply with applicable Chinese plant health standards and be free from any quarantine pests of concern to China. From an operation point of view, we'll continue to be vigilant to ensure that we pack in quality fruits in regards to maturity levels and also the physical and internal quality of uh, the avocado. The benefit of accessing the Chinese market are already being seen as avocado farmers in the country earn more money in their pockets. Companies like Kakuzi now employ over 3,000 workers who make their living working on the farm. Having tapped into its new market in China, Kenya has cemented its place as Africa's leading exporter of avocados and the sixth largest globally. That was Daniel Aratmoy reporting. Private businesses in China and Africa are experiencing a rapid increase in cooperation and investment, particularly in sectors such as logistics and new energy. These industries will feature prominently at the upcoming third China-Africa Economic and Trade Expo set to kick off this week in Changsha. Chen Yu has more. Astro Aviation is a cargo airline based in Nairobi, Kenya. Established in 2000, it serves more than 50 destinations in Africa, Europe, and Asia. Chen Xingxiao is in charge of the airline's China office. She shares the cooperation projects between the company and its Chinese partners. We have three major programs with our Chinese partners. The first is to obtain the approval of scheduled flights with the Civil Aviation Administration of China. The second focuses on charter flights. During the pandemic, we arranged charter flights between Chinese and African companies, providing a fast and efficient transportation solution. In addition, our headquarters in Kenya has always been supporting Chinese airlines in goods transportation. We help transport products that arrive in Kenya to other African countries such as Somalia, South Sudan, Tanzania, and South Africa. She also says Astro Airline is now establishing its presence in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. Chen believes both the Chinese and the African governments need to take more steps to facilitate their cooperation in the logistics industry. I think the Chinese and African governments should prioritize enhancing policy communication and coordination to provide more support at the policy level for businesses engaged in cross-border trade. There should be more investments in infrastructure construction in both China and Africa to improve efficiency in cargo transportation. We also need to promote trade liberalization and facilitation and strengthen relevant rules and regulations in the sector as well. Apart from logistics, new energy is another sector where China and African businesses are expanding cooperation. Based in Changsha, News My Power is a high-tech company that focuses on new energy products. Li Chung from the company's foreign trade department sheds light on the types of products they offer in the African markets. We provide South Africa with products such as insulation-free foldable solar panels and portable power stations to help local families, medical and educational institutions, 
as well as small and medium-sized enterprises with their electricity needs during power outages. Our products can replace the traditional fuel-powered generators that are known for noisy operation and inability to store power. Our products generate electricity through the sun, providing quiet and convenient power storage that better caters to the needs of African households and institutions. In 2021, China and Africa signed an agreement known as the China-Africa Cooperation Vision 2035. This document emphasizes the need for energy collaboration between China and Africa to prioritize clean and low-carbon energy sources, promote green development, and enhance ecological protection. Li says she's positive about the prospects of such cooperation. In the long term, we are very optimistic about energy cooperation between China and Africa. The electricity market in Africa is not as developed as that of China. That's why our new energy products have the potential to replace traditional fuel-based power generation, as they are better suited to meet the electricity demands of the African market. Official data shows the export growth rate of China to African countries exceeded 11 percent last year. Experts believe that emerging industries like new energy and logistics will play an increasingly important role in China's foreign trade market. For the Beijing Hour, this is Tian Yu. Coming up, the head of the Wagner Group has arrived in Belarus. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. Thirteen minutes past the hour. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has confirmed the arrival of Wagner Group chief Evgeny Prigozhin in his country. Russia has dropped all charges against Prigozhin and his mercenary fighters. Dasha Chernyshova has more from Moscow. Russian authorities have confirmed that a criminal case against Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, has been closed. This is part of the agreement brokered by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Now the Wagner fighters could join the Russian army or follow their head to Belarus. Lukashenko has confirmed that Prigozhin is now in Belarus. He said Wagner combat experience would be useful for his country. He said Wagner fighters would now stay in Belarus at their own expense. He suggested them to use an abandoned military compound and Lukashenko stressed that Wagner fighters would not be guarding Russian tactical nuclear weapons that had been stationed in his country. Lukashenko was also very openly talking about the negotiations he held with Prigozhin on the 24th of June. Here is more from Alexander Lukashenko. Putin and I are guilty of not acting in due time, so none of us think of ourselves as heroes. Yes, we stopped a bad development, possibly a monstrously bad development. We are allies. We cannot sit on the fence. If Russia falls, we will be buried under the wreckage. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin thanked the military for averting a civil war in his country. He said the people and the army were not on the side of the mutineers and announced a minute of silence for the army pilots that were shot down during Wagner uprising. He also noted that Wagner was financed by the Russian state, which spent 
86 billion Russian rubles, that is roughly 1 billion US dollars, on it from May 2022 to May this year. In addition, he said Prigozhin has made pretty much the same amount of money over the same periods of time for his catering business, providing food to the Russian army. And Russia's Ministry of Defense has also announced on Tuesday that Wagner is about to start the transfer of military equipment to MLD. That was Dasha Chernyshova reporting. One of the largest religious gatherings in the world is underway in Saudi Arabia. Millions of Muslims are traveling to Mecca to take part in the Hajj pilgrimage. Among them are a new wave of Iranians making that journey after Iran and Saudi Arabia normalized ties under China's mediation efforts. Asan Kevani reports. In the seven years when Iran and Saudi Arabia had no political relations, the number of Iranians taking part in the Hajj pilgrimage declined substantially. During the COVID pandemic, Saudi Arabia banned international visitors from attending the Hajj and Umrah pilgrimages. Iran always has a large number of applicants to attend the annual Hajj ceremony, which takes place in the last month of the Islamic lunar calendar. Besides, many Iranians are also eager to try the Umrah, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca that can be undertaken at any time of the year. Prior to 2016, as many as half a million Iranians would travel to Saudi Arabia every year to visit the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. The absence of Iranian pilgrims from the Hajj is estimated to have deprived Saudi Arabia of more than $1.3 billion in annual revenue. The economic impact was also felt in Iran's Hajj tourism sector. The closure of embassies for eight years forced hundreds of Hajj travel agencies across Iran to shut down or suspend their activities. Now we hope our guild can recover after the reopening of embassies and more demand for Hajj. The normalization of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this year is likely to ease travel with more direct flights expected between the two countries. Although Saudi Arabia is yet to officially reopen its embassy in Tehran, Iranian pilgrims can apply online for visas to attend the Hajj and smaller Umrah pilgrimage to Mecca. To have our visas for the Hajj pilgrimage, only three days to fly to Mecca. Saudi Arabia has accelerated the process of issuing visas. After the embassies were reopened, we had to wait a shorter amount of time with lower expenses. The normalization of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia can definitely facilitate the visa process for the Hajj pilgrimage. Besides, Iran's consulate in Jeddah is a source of assurance for the Iranian pilgrims in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has allocated 1.2 million seats for pilgrims this year. Some 90,000 Iranian nationals are set to take part in the Hajj. Many more are expected to travel to Saudi Arabia for the Umrah pilgrimage from July. That was Asan Kevani with a report about Iranians attending the Hajj in Saudi Arabia. Well, Egypt's become the first African country with the capacity to assemble, integrate, and test satellites thanks to its partnership with China in space exploration. Two China-funded prototype satellites were recently delivered to Egypt as another example of Belt and Road cooperation. The two countries are working on more space programs and have jointly launched a project to build a space debris and satellite monitoring station in the northern African country. Adel Al-Maruki spoke with the Egyptian side's project leader. Dr. Makram Ibrahim was formerly the head of the Solar and Space Research Department at the Egyptian National Research Institute of Astronomy and Geophysics. He's one of the Egyptian pioneers who are currently shaping the country's space program. 
Ibrahim is leading the first of its kind cooperation between his institute and the National Astronomical Observatory of China to build the most advanced space monitoring station in Egypt. A lot of satellites, a lot of uh, missions also to the uh, march. Many applications are being carried out by the Chinese colleagues. For this reason, no one knows uh, at which level will it stop the Chinese people in space science. So I mean they are very active and uh, also they are cooperative for, uh, for agreements. As the leader of the new satellite and space debris monitoring station, Ibrahim is very excited to learn and apply Chinese technology in his line of work. Beijing is providing Cairo with two high-power laser-equipped telescopes. One of them is among the largest in the world for monitoring near-Earth objects. The Egyptian scientists say when completed, the new observatory will greatly help Egypt build a strong space program. The Egyptian Space Agency, for example, from the point of view, if the Space Agency wants to launch satellites, so they will decide, I will launch this satellite in this orbit. So before you launch this satellite at this orbit, you have to know if this place is suitable for your satellite or not. You can do that by the help of the database obtained from uh, our station. One of the other advantages also is to avoid the collision from space debris to, uh, to, to collide with your satellite. The two countries are discussing the possibility of building a cluster of telescopes to increase the accuracy of the Egyptian space debris and satellites database. It will also expand Egypt's field vision in space to serve other countries. Chinese space technology is helping in advancing Egypt's space ambitions. Cooperation between the two countries saw Egypt build its first satellite manufacturing lab as well as acquiring some of the most advanced telescopes. Soon, these joint efforts will expand to include many African countries as Egypt becomes the headquarters for the African Space Agency. That was Adel al Maruki in Cairo. Various industries in China are leveraging AI technologies to enhance their production processes and dramatically improve efficiency. One area where companies are benefiting greatly from the latest technological advancements is in production design and advertising. Zhou Fang has this story. Graphic design, script writing, and video making are among the most important parts of advertising. Nowadays, AI tools are helping companies produce more creative promotional products at an astonishingly faster speed. Xinyue Gubao Cultural and Tourism Innovation Company in Meizhou, Guangdong Province, is one of the beneficiaries of the latest cutting-edge technology. Design director Lai Zhiguang says different AI tools are transforming the way they make graphics and videos for customers. Previously, we had to shoot numerous video clips of people and different scenes to create just one video. However, AI tools can now generate a multitude of clips from our video production. We used to rely on software like Photoshop for graphics and had to write scripts ourselves. But now AI tools can handle all these tasks. Overall, AI tools have increased our efficiency by 3 to 10 times. In terms of video production, the improvement is even more significant, reaching up to a hundred times. Deputy Manager Shan Feng with China Focus echoes Lai's sentiments regarding the remarkable increase in efficiency. For their smart technology company in Beijing, one of their advertising methods involves AR and VR-supported reading products. 
Our work involves summarizing the main content and the character relationships and creating knowledge graphics or networks that will fit the system. We are already utilizing AI tools for all these tasks. Previously, it took a worker one week to summarize the contents of a book and present them in AR and VR supported reading formats. However, AI tools can now complete this in just one or two days. We believe that the results provided by AR are more creative and imaginative than those offered by designers. Our work efficiency has improved exponentially. According to the two professionals, the cost of using AI tools now is quite affordable, with some platforms charging only several hundred yuan each month. In terms of video production, the overall cost can be significantly reduced compared to labor-intensive methods. When asked about the potential threat of AI tools to human workers, both professionals emphasize the importance of embracing these new technologies. If we perceive them as a threat and reject them, we won't be able to learn this technology. Technological revolution is inevitable, so we can only embrace it. We can also integrate the technology with our cultural heritage, human touch, and innate advantages in consciousness. It's not AI technology that will replace human beings. It's people who know how to use AI tools. Learning how to use them effectively and seeking their assistance when needed is crucial. The professionals also highlight that human workers still play a decisive role in the production process, adding that there is still room for improvement in terms of the tool's functionality. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhou Fang. Coming up, a deadly heat wave in Spain. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. Two people have died as a result of dangerously high temperatures in Spain. Alerts are in place in 23 provinces. The state weather agency said temperatures reached 43 degrees Celsius on Tuesday in the country's south. Spain's already banned outdoor work during periods of extreme heat and set maximum and minimum temperatures for workplaces. Last year was the country's hottest ever. Spring this year was also declared the hottest on record. Failing infrastructure in the United States is leaving one desert town in New Mexico without water. Access to water has become a concern, along with hot weather in the southwestern U.S. Alistair Baverstock has more. Truth or consequences, a town home to 6,000 people in the heart of the New Mexico desert. Despite the arid landscape, water here is plentiful. The town has natural hot springs and stands beside this state's largest reservoir, Elephant Butte. And yet, entire neighborhoods are currently going days at a time without running water. Right here. Angie Gonzalez is the city manager. It leaks everywhere. <laughs> we have a good aquifer that we're, we're pumping out of. Well, we get it into the, into the system. The water line is so old that it just... It just leaked. The town's antiquated water infrastructure, some of it nearly a century old, is losing a lot of its load. According to local officials, leaky pipes, in truth or consequences, lost more than 40% of the town's total water supply last year, nearly 760 million litres of water in a region struggling with worsening drought. It's an issue across town. You know, like just standing here in this alleyway, there's a leak there, down there, one over there. And this is in one space, so if you actually kind of cruise around, you'll see them. So. 
whenever there is a, a water a water leak, we have to close the water off to the businesses. You close the water off to the to the hospital and to the schools. We have to move the patients to Las Cruces and to El Paso. The schools have to be dismissed for the day. Uh, the the businesses they lose revenue. Businesses lose revenue. City loses revenue, and uh, and it's just all because of these water leaks. When leaks spring up, Arni Castaneda is the man to call. So what we do is we just come in here, we dig it up, uh, we put a band-aid on it, and we move on to the next one. The ideal thing would to replace, replace the whole line and get rid of all the leaks. Um, but I do not have that amount of money. Indeed, funding is a major issue. Are you looking at your water department right now? Yes, sir. <laughs> Andrew Curry is currently the city's only water maintenance man. In the desert, you need water, and people are really mad when you don't have their water set up. I'm the only person. Every time we fix one, another one pops up, so for lack of a better term, we're drowning. The city manager says the town needs $20 million to fix its water problem, but it's by no means the only town struggling. The American Society of Civil Engineers estimates the U.S. loses over 20 billion litres of treated water a day to failing infrastructure, a situation that needs solutions as the global climate changes. That was Alistair Baverstock reporting. A drivers in New York City will be charged extra in tolls to enter Manhattan south of 60th Street as part of a long-stalled congestion pricing plan. Uh, the first-in-the-nation plan is part of an effort to reduce congestion, improve air quality, and raise funds for the city's public transit system. It'll bring New York in line with places like London and Singapore, which have implemented similar programs. We're at 28 past the hour now. Beijing's at 22 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's sunny in 36. Chongqing's down to 28, then a slight rain in 33. Last is 15 tonight. Tomorrow's cloudy in 26. Hong Kong's at 27 this evening, then it's cloudy in 32. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 22 overnight, a slight rain in 30 on Thursday. Islamabad will see a slight rain in 24 overnight, then more rain in 32. Bangkok's 27 this evening, then rain in 35 on Thursday. In Africa, Nairobi's getting a slight rain in 23 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 8 degrees overnight. It's cloudy tomorrow in 16 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, delegates are discussing global debt and artificial intelligence, among other issues, on day two of the summer Davos meetings in Tianjin. The head of the Wagner groups arrives in Belarus, and dangerously high temperatures in Spain are blamed for at least two deaths. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. 60 minutes of comprehensive news your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, still to come. In business, China's industrial profits drop at a slower pace in May. In sports, one month to go until the World University Games in Chengdu. In culture and entertainment, an Oscar-winning filmmaker from New Zealand is visiting China. To contact us, you can email beijinghour at cri.com.cn. Now, check in the day's headline news. A mainland official says U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stressed that the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence during his recent visit to China. State Council Taiwan Affairs Office spokesperson Zhu Fenglian warned the DPP authorities in Taiwan that attempts to seek independence are doomed to fail. 
The visit of U.S. Secretary of State Blinken made it clear that the U.S. will abide by the promises made by President Biden, reaffirming that the U.S. doesn't support Taiwan independence and has no intention of conflict with China. We are telling the DPP authorities that the so-called Taiwan independence is a dead end. The spokesperson added that fabricating lies about receiving support from the international community will not deceive the people in Taiwan. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has confirmed the arrival of the head of the Wagner Group in his country. Security guarantees, as he said and promised yesterday, were provided. Well, I see that Yevgeny Prigozhin is already flying on this plane. Yes, indeed, he is in Belarus today. As I promised, if you want to stay with us for some time and so on, we will help you, of course, at their expense. Lukashenko said uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin's private military group has fought some of the deadliest battles in Russia's military operation in Ukraine. The exile of the Wagner chief was part of a deal that ended the short-lived mutiny in Russia over the weekend. Uh, Prigozhin has not been seen since Saturday when he waved to well-wishers from a vehicle in the southern city of Rostov. He issued an audio statement on Monday. Then on Tuesday morning, data showed a private jet believed to belong to him flew from Rostov to an airbase south west of the Belarusian capital of Minsk. The deputy Russian ambassador to the UN has urged several European countries to update the Security Council on the investigation of the Nord Stream pipeline bombing. We reiterated the necessity of the authorities of uh, Germany, Denmark and Sweden to update the Council on the course of their investigation. This hasn't been done yet. And in the meantime, we have learned that the authorities of uh, these countries, in particular Denmark, they have organized the tour of journalists to the place of the sabotage with all the equipment, uh, making pictures, showing certain uh, aspects of the situation and, of course, promoting the conspiracy theories that would uh, be aimed at shielding one country which we all well know about. Dmitry Polyansky also told the media that Russia's become stronger after the Wagner incident, saying that many fighters of the private armed group are real patriots of Russia. The head of the Sudanese army is urging young people to take up arms and join the fight against the RSF. The general commander also announced a one-day ceasefire for the Eid al-Adha holiday on Wednesday. Uh, The rival Rapid Support Forces earlier announced a unilateral two-day truce for that holiday. However, it failed to stop the bloodshed entirely as heavy fighting continued between the two factions in Khartoum. Clashes have killed more than 3,000 people since April 15th. About 2.5 million people are displaced inside and outside Sudan. An unrelenting heat wave in Texas is testing the region's power grid as demand soars during persistent high temperatures. On Tuesday, the Texas grid was operating under an elevated weather watch that does not ask residents to curtail power but raises the possibility. Energy expert Doug Lewin stresses that grid management is able to handle incidents such as outages in the summer, saying that winter actually carries bigger risk. ERCOT system is much better suited for the summertime than it is for the winter. Uh, There have not been summer outages in Texas in in over a generation at least. And that is because it's always been thought of as a summer peaking system. However, officials are still urging residents to curb power use if possible. As forecasters say, relief may not arrive until the 4th of July holiday. Local residents say a power blackout is the last thing they'd like to face in the summer.
We definitely don't want to have the rolling blackouts and things that have happened in the past um, when it gets really hot. So I think if we all just do our part, then we can at least stay comfortable through this hot Texas heat. In Austin, paramedics have responded to more than 100 heat-related incidents in the past two weeks alone. And uh, that's your headline news. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's industrial profits drop at a slower pace in May. Patriotism, simply put, is the feeling of love for or devotion to one's country. Isn't it an innate human sentiment? Why does it have to be promoted? As China molds its first patriotic education law, who's most likely to violate the law once it's in place? Find the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcast, and right here on CGTN Radio. We're at 36 minutes past the hour. In business now, stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished mixed today. Timothy Pope has more. Weak industrial profits data made uh, Chinese mainland investors a lot less enthusiastic. Uh, the Shanghai Composite Index was down in early trade, and while it did manage to erase those losses, the best the index could manage was to close flat. The Shenzhen Component Index ended the day half of 1% lower. We saw consumer, real estate and healthcare stocks all uh, trading lower with energy and utilities counters supporting the gains. There was also a significant sell-off in AI-related stocks after a report in the Wall Street Journal suggested that the United States government may stop uh, all shipments of AI chips made by big US semiconductor firms like NVIDIA. These companies are already uh, under some uh, restrictions over the types of chips they can export and uh, NVIDIA, uh, for, as one example, has a line of chips specifically designed for China to comply with the existing U.S. export rules. The prospect of being locked out of access to uh, even that hardware uh, had Chinese AI companies falling. We saw Quinlan Tech shedding 5.3% uh, and Inspur slumping by the 10% daily limit. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index uh, saw a little uptick. In Japan, the Nikkei gained over 2%. Data from China's National Bureau of Statistics shows that industrial profits declined 12.6% in May from a year ago. The number also marks a slower drop for a third consecutive month. In the meantime, the indicator declined by 18.8% in the first five months of this year. That's 1.8 points lower than the drop seen in the January to April period. China set a target to import 300 billion U.S. dollars of products from Africa by 2025. Uganda is among 21 African nations enjoying tariff-free access to Chinese markets. The policy covers 98% of taxable items, including agricultural goods and chemicals. Ugandan ambassador to China Oliver Oneka says she's happy to see the growing trade in agriculture between Uganda and China. Uganda is an agricultural country. About 70% of our population is still in agriculture. Here we have an opportunity of industrializing agriculture, adding value to what we grow. I know for Uganda we still have challenges of meeting the standards. The phytosanitary standards that China wants. But this is something we are all working on. I'm hoping that I will get Chinese companies that are interested 
in working with us to improve those phytosanitary processes. Onika also says the country is working to improve from subsistence agriculture to commercial agriculture and adopt better technologies. China is aiming to uh, achieve peak carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. Many green development topics are being discussed at the summer Davos Forum in Tianjin. Juju has more. Green development has always been a key topic at the Summer Davos Forum, and in recent years, China has made great achievement in the sector. According to data from the National Development and Reform Commission, since 2012, the proportion of clean energy consumption in China has increased from 14.5% to 25.5% in 2021, while the proportion of coal consumption decreased from 68.5% to 56%. Industry insiders are calling for more efforts to help companies achieve green transition effectively. For the enterprise level, we need to set a, uh, you know, each company, you know, their goal, own goal, in order to achieve that, you know, carbon neutrality 2060, you know, goal. You know, that's a long-term goal. But short-termly, I think there's a few ways we could do. One is how to improve the. Uh, you know, their manufacturing or production, you know, efficiency. Secondly, by adopting you know, new technologies, such as the alternative feedstock. The first part is to have a vision, uh, a vision of innovation, a vision of creating value, not only for your customers, mm -hmm. for your business employees, but also for society at large. Second, you know, uh, nowadays innovation is very much linked to technology. To boost green development at the forum, Honeywell, one of the leading aerospace product providers in the world, just launched its new solution to reduce carbon emission called Sustainable Aviation Fuel, or SAF, last month. And uh, to achieve sustainable growth, the only way to, to do it is to introduce the uh, sustain, sustainable aviation fuel. We are now currently uh, are building one big facility, large facility in Nyingan uh, site. Uh, in last May at this May time, we have another partner, and we just signed the contract with them and starting to do the second one in Sichuan province. This year also marks the first time that the Summer Doubles Forum venue has achieved 100% green power supply during the event period, equivalent to reducing 800 tons of carbon dioxide. That was Juju reporting. A promotional event for China's National Economic and Technological Development Zones has opened in Nanjing, Jiangsu Province. The event gathered over 130 national-level economic development zones and over 200 well-known multinational enterprise executives and representatives of international organizations and foreign business associations. Camilia Popescu is vice president of IKEA Purchasing and Logistics Area East Asia, and she says they hope to build partnerships with local authorities and other companies. All our supply chain, we are looking for developing su sustainable the business. This is uh, in line with uh, IKEA's policy for uh, sustainable development, yes. but also with China's policy for sustainable development. So we are meeting here very strong, and we are looking for uh, partners who can enable this. The event's a special sector of a campaign-themed Invest in China, which launched in March, aiming to attract foreign investment. Travel agencies across China are embracing a spike in bookings. Data from tourism service provider Chunar.com shows in the week that ended on June 23rd, flight bookings more than tripled uh, compared to the previous week.
Car sales have spiked in Brazil thanks to a government-funded discount program. Despite high interest rates, the Brazilian economy grew by nearly 2% in the first quarter of this year. The government aims to promote even more growth with tax cuts. To boost auto sales, Paulo Cabral has more. Brazil's program to boost the auto industry has proven very successful, getting customers to buy new vehicles with big government tax cuts. The price of cars was too high, so with this discount, I managed to put together the full value I need to buy a new car. It's not easy to buy a car in Brazil. I have been looking for a new one since March, when my car was stolen. The federal government allocated about $800 million to fund tax breaks amounting to nearly $1,700 for lower-cost vehicles priced around $24,000 or less. Nearly 85% of the funds have already been used. Since the government discounts began, our sales went up about 30 to 35 percent. We performed better than we expected. We just hope the market will remain good after the program ends. And that's the big question, whether this push will generate sustained momentum or if it will be a temporary spike in sales. Government officials says the plan may help, but he says it won't be enough. Only one element, like cutting down the car prices, for example, is not enough to bring a new dynamic to the economy. One problem that we have now is the high interest rates. It's a concern all over the country in different sectors. We hope that the central bank will be reasonable and have a different attitude concerning the interest rates. At first, the scheme was presented as a program to boost the sales of cars, but the government was criticized for giving incentives to individual transportation at a time when there is a global effort to cut down on the emissions of greenhouse gases. So the bill was changed to include also trucks and buses. Truckers will get the benefits of up to $20,000 when exchanging vehicles more than 20 years old for newer, less polluting models. The long-term goal is to reduce carbon emissions. In the short term, the tax cuts and other incentives may help the auto industry bounce back. We have uh, nowadays uh, an expectation to reduce for 10% to 15% the truck market compared to last year. So this program can be a boost uh, for this figure. Any boost is welcome during the business slowdown, but economists say it's too early to tell if this program will help produce sustainable long-term growth. That was Paulo Cabral reporting. California is stepping up efforts to oversee gas prices and hold large oil companies accountable for price manipulation. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new law in March to combat price gouging at the pump. The law is considered the first in the nation and a model for the rest of the country. Under the new state law, a new independent watchdog will be created within the California Energy Commission. The new division is aimed at uh, rooting out price gouging by oil companies and authorizes penalties to hold the oil and gas industry accountable for or gas gouging. You're listening to the Beijing Hour coming up in sports. One month to go until the World University Games in Chengdu. Carlos Alcaraz has guaranteed that he will be the top seed at Wimbledon next week. Will he be able to stop Novak Djokovic's title defense? Who can come out as the biggest surprise from the Chinese contingent at Grass Court's Grand Slam? Tune in to this week's Sideline Story podcast. We bring you all things sports related. 
Around 47 past the hour. Turning to sports now, here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. Wednesday marks the 30-day countdown to the 31st edition of World University Games in Chengdu. To mark the occasion, organizers held a celebration featuring various performances at the Dongan Lake Sports Park, which will serve as a competition venue at the upcoming Games. It included an entertaining street basketball game played by college students in Chengdu. Meantime, the torch relay has reached Yibin, and it will now make its return to Chengdu to light the main cauldron for the event at the opening ceremony. The Chinese city is the third mainland location to host the biennial Summer Universiate, following Beijing in 2001 and Shenzhen in 2011. In basketball action from the Women's Asian Cup, Team China edged South Korea 87-81 in overtime to claim a third consecutive win in the group stage and march into the semifinals. China was down by 9 after the first quarter but managed to crawl back before a decisive 15-9 surge in the OT. Center Han Xu once again topped the scoreboard with 33 points. Li Meng added 26. China faces the winner between Japan and Australia of Group B in the last four. Reaching the semifinals also means China has secured a berth of the Paris 2024 qualifiers. In football, England defender Alex Greenwood is in fear of missing the upcoming Women's World Cup. Greenwood limped out of training on Tuesday after being tackled by teammate Georgia Stanway just 23 days before the start of the tournament. Despite worry, Greenwood confirmed later on that she feels all right. I mean, naturally, when you when you get hurt in training or games, whether it's today or two weeks ago, you, you have a moment of doubt. But once I got open and I had the look, I felt okay. England, the reigning European champion, gets its World Cup campaign underway on July 22nd against Haiti, before further group stage games against Denmark and China. Women's football superstar Marta is set to play her sixth World Cup next month in Australia and New Zealand. Brazil announced the World Cup squad on Tuesday with the 37-year-old Marta included on that list. Marta has won the World Player of the Year award six times but has never won the World Cup in five previous attempts with Brazil. This will likely be her last try. Brazil's head coach earlier said that Marta could start the tournament on the bench while she continues to recover from a knee injury. Brazil is in Group F, which also includes France, Jamaica and Panama. Manchester City has officially signed Matteo Kovacic from Premier League rivals Chelsea. The Croatian midfielder says he can't wait to get started at his new club. I came here to, to this great club with an amazing uh, manager to, to learn and to improve my, my understanding of football and to try to be the best version of myself. So it was a huge part, of course, and like I said before as well, it's a huge, huge pleasure to, to be here and to try to improve and learn. The 29-year-old city's first summer signing and has agreed to a four-year deal which will keep him at Etihad Stadium until the summer of 2027. Kovacic will wear the number 8 shirt. Andrea Pirlo is returning to Italy as coach of Serie B club Sampdoria. Pirlo, who coached in Turkey last season, signed a two-year contract. The former midfielder began his coaching career at Juventus in 2020, but lost just one disappointing season. Sampdoria won just three matches last season and finished at the bottom of the Serie A, which resulted in relegation. Pirlo replaces Dejan Stankovic, whose contract expired at the end of the season. 
in tennis, China's Zhang Zhizhen earned his first tour-level win on grass as he defeated former finalist Lorenzo Sonegal at Eastbourne International. The world number 54 saved three set points on serve in the first set before earning the decisive break of the second set to win the near two-hour battle. Zhang next plays Maxim Cressy in the second round. In the women's singles at Eastbourne, Chinese player Wang Xiyu cruised past Rebecca Moreno in straight sets to avenge her loss to the Canadian opponent last week at the Birmingham Classic. Zhang Qingwen's recent woeful run continues as she squandered all eight breakpoints in a straight sets defeat to world number four Jessica Pegula. Meantime, Yuan Yue has advanced to the Wimbledon qualifications second round by outclassing Bibian Shoops. In motorsports, Formula One drivers Max Verstappen and Yuki Tsunado have swapped their cars to try out mega trucks ahead of the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend. The Red Bull and Alfa Tauri pair went for a race at the bottom of the Tavarin Asberg mine in Eisner. Verstappen says it's a brand new experience. Honestly, the approach of my qualifying lap was just to, to survive. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I mean, of course, you tried to go as fast as possible, but you know, we, you were jumping around so much. Sometimes you couldn't even see probably where you were going. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was a great experience. Verstappen won a qualifying lap, but his truck misfired in the race, which handed Tsunado an easy victory. But the Dutch driver is unlikely to be challenged by Tsunado when he returns to his dominant Red Bull this weekend. And finally, Swedish pole vaulter Armand Duplantis cleared the world-leading outdoor 6.12 meters at the Golden Spike meet. The 23-year-old world record holder improved his previous outdoor best of 6.11 this season in the Netherlands earlier this month. Duplantis cleared the mark with his first attempt before failing to clear 6.17. He set a world record of 6.22 at an indoor meet in France in February. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with Sports. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in culture, an Oscar-winning filmmaker from New Zealand is now visiting China. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 53 minutes past the hour. The 14th China Photography Festival is opened in Sanmenxia, Henan Province. Organizers have set up an interactive My Favorite Photos area. The exhibition hopes to reflect the diversity of photography and showcase the achievements of China's recent photographic creations. One of the business delegates with the Prime Minister of New Zealand on a visit to China is the legendary filmmaker and Oscar winner Sir Richard Taylor. Cao Chufeng earlier caught up with him to chat about his incredible works and cooperation projects with Chinese filmmakers. Winning five Oscars include on best makeup, costume design and visual effects. Also being honored with a knighthood by the late Queen of UK for his contributions to the film industry. Sir Richard Taylor is definitely a prominent figure in New Zealand's creative industry, and China is a place he knows well. You worked regularly in China for over 20 years, and now you're back once again. What do you plan to do or achieve during your trip this time? I've actually been working in China for nearly 25 years, and what originally brought me here was the need to find a manufacturing partner. Very fortunately, the very first person I met became one of my closest friends. He uh, introduced me to China. So there are a number of delegates coming up from 
New Zealand, focused on uh, business, trade, uh, the creative industries, and that's specifically the area that I am here to hopefully share our stories and connect with more people. So Taylor and his team have done concept designs and prop designs for many well-known movies throughout the world. And one of the most recent projects is help making the protective suits for Chinese hit sci-fi movie The Wandering Earth 2. Not to in any way to take anything away from the Chinese teams uh, run by my very dear friend Sean, who came down as a young intern from the Beijing Film Academy many, many years ago. He came home and is responsible pretty much single-handedly his company for doing all of the high-tech, beautiful costuming and uh, physical props for Wandering Earth. But we have had the great fortune of working alongside to do some fun stuff. We feel very, very proud of having worked on uh, really China's uh, greatest science fiction endeavor. As an influential figure in the film industry, how do you view the potential for cooperation between China and New Zealand film industries? Well, I, I believe it's immense, and I believe that we haven't utilized our, our production uh, collaboration opportunities nearly enough. You know, I, I've said a number of times, there's a thousand Lord of the Rings stories waiting to be told in China because of the depth of your history and mythology. and. Uh, there could be wonderful opportunities for collaboration. That was New Zealand filmmaker Sir Richard Taylor. The sequel to animation hit I Am What I Am has released the first trailer with the series continuing to tell stories on inheriting traditional Chinese culture. The newly released poster shows that the movie will feature new characters. And uh, the first movie, which tells the story of a bunch of uh, dragon and lion dance performers, grossed 250 million yuan, or roughly 34 million US dollars in box office. I Am What I Am is scheduled to open next year in domestic theaters. Now, Britain's portrait, or National Portrait Gallery is hosting a photograph collection of the Beatles, which had never been publicly exhibited before. The exhibition offers a trove of images taken by band member Paul McCartney. Gallery director Nicholas Cullinan says the collection provides a chance to see, for the very first time, Beatlemania from the inside out. Paul McCartney got in touch and said that he, he was working on a book um, on Linda McCartney, his former wife, who was a great photographer. And in going through the archive, he found a thousand photographs that he'd taken, which he thought had all been lost, of the early days of the Beatles. And he basically said, like, would you like to have a look? And do you think this could be interesting? Like, yes. McCartney took the photos in 1963 and 64, as the Fab Four went from emerging British celebrities to megastars. Uh, they chart the Beatles' journey from dingy dressing rooms in provincial theaters to stadium shows and luxury hotels. We're at 58 minutes past the hour. Uh, Beijing's at 22 degrees this evening. Tomorrow, sunshine in 36. Chongqing's down to 28. Then a slight rain in 33. Lasses at 15 overnight. Cloudy in 26 on Thursday. Hong Kong dips to 27 degrees. It'll be cloudy in 32 tomorrow. Uh, elsewhere at Tokyo's 22 overnight. A slight rain in 30 on Thursday. Islamabad will see a slight rain in 24 overnight. That rain continues with a high of 32. Bangkok's at 27 this evening. Then rain in 35 on Thursday. Thursday. In Africa, Nairobi has slight rain in 23 degrees, and finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 8 this evening, then clouds in 16. 
And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, delegates are discussing global debt and artificial intelligence, among other issues, on day two of the summer Davos meetings in Tianjin. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. <laughs>